If you don't take your financial future, your wealth building into your own hands, you're at the mercy of others. So how do you take that into your hands if you don't have time? You could spend hours and hours reading, watching YouTube videos, networking with people, learn as much as you can. Welcome to Surgeon Syndicate. If you're paying attention, you know that you only make money when you work. It might be great money, but it's dependent on you. The information on this podcast will help you solve that. We interview experts and provide analysis into financial freedom through commercial real estate. Why? To help physicians like you thrive. Let's dive in. Welcome back to the second half of the interview with Ash Patel. Let's jump right in where Ash has got some great advice on why to be looking at non-residential commercial real estate. Yeah. And a lot of lessons learned in what you just shared. One of them being the thing that everybody does, including me, is buy the house down the street so you can keep an eye on it, right? And then you get tenants in there. But I promise you, the way that that story usually ends is there's some unforeseen repair, furnace goes out, roof needs to be replaced, and that $6,000 a year profit that you had on paper in your pro forma, if I make, let's say, $400 a month in rent profit at the end of the year, that's $5,000 in profit. But you don't take into account the age of the roof, the furnace that needs to be replaced, or more often, the one bad tenant. The one bad tenant can make your life absolutely hell. And I gave this family, single mom, kids, a beautiful house, pristine condition. And two years later, I got it back in the most horrendous, unlivable condition ever. And it kicks you in the gut, man, right? That you did something nice for somebody, you kept their rent very low, and then you just got like tossed out. It sucks. The residential thing sucks. Just the way those leases are written, the landlord is responsible for basically everything, right? Yeah. It's not a way to build wealth. Maybe have some write-offs, have a little bit of income coming in. But I promise you, a lot of the people that underwrite these don't take into account, okay, in three years, I have to replace the furnace. The roof has seven years left. This is what it's going to cost. Plug those things into your numbers, the higher taxes, right? Maybe the rents don't continue to go up. Maybe they stabilize or decrease a little bit. And then also throw in there a little bit of vacancy in that one bad tenant, right? The months of lost rent, the legal fees and getting them out, the damage that they're going to do. And that doesn't take into account the headspace. The house down the street, you drive by it every day knowing somebody's in there just destroying it. Not a good feeling, right? So yes, in the apartment thing, look, if the returns were good on apartments, I would do that as well. There's just too much competition. It's become too easy to go from single families to duplexes. Then people started buying fourplexes and then they bought six units and then they raised money and bought 20, 30, 40, 50 unit apartment buildings. And pretty soon the playing field of apartment investors has gotten so oversaturated. And because of that, the returns have come down so much, right? So whereas with commercial real estate, Mike, we look at the risk a lot differently. We buy value add. So we buy towards the bottom. And we know that if we improve the vacancy, improve the tenant mix, raise rent a little bit closer to market, that there's a lot of forced appreciation. And we're not bound by comps. Some of the biggest benefits of commercial real estate is our tenants, our business owners, right? So 
I have tenants that on their way in to this office building, if they see trash or weeds, they'll pick them up, they'll pull them, they'll get the sprayer. The snow removal guys didn't do a great job. There's a bucket of salt. They'll throw some salt on the stairs. Residential tenants don't care. They don't do that kind of stuff, right? Business owners will wash their windows. They'll change the light bulbs. They'll keep the parking lot clean. They care about the appearance and the facade and the vibe of your property. In addition to that, we're not bound by comps. So if you have a class B apartment building and you raise rents, you renovate everything, but right down the street, there's a class A apartment building. They charge a thousand dollars a month for beautiful new class A property. You're probably bound to about $800 a month on your rents. Because at some point people are going to be like, wait a minute, I'll just pay the $200 more and go live in that really nice spot. For us, we're not bound by any kind of rents. If you have a vacant building that you picked up for a couple hundred thousand dollars, you sign a 10-year lease to a dollar general or family dollar, you've now made over a million dollars with signing one piece of paper, right? So it's a totally different way to build wealth. It's by no means slow and steady, and it's by no means risk averse. But the way that we buy value add is we're buying at the bottom and we have evidence that shows we can improve it. We never buy and roll the dice and think, oh, you know what? It'd be great if I can get a national tenant. No. During due diligence, we test market the property, right? We find out how attractive it is based on so many different metrics, and then we move forward with the purchase. So what you're saying for the due diligence is that period before you close. And so you're actually getting it near leased before it closed. So somebody asked me once, a doc was like, well, why doesn't the person who own it, why don't they just lease it? Why isn't it leased? Why do these things happen? Great question. So maybe it's somebody like me where I've had a lot of smaller office building strip malls. And then I go buy five, six, $7 million strip malls and office buildings. What's going to get my attention, right? The $500,000 office building, sorry, it's not really worth my time. And I'm looking to offload that. I don't want the headaches. I don't have the time to put into it, right? Or it could be probate inheritance. A lot of times when children inherit commercial property, they don't know what to do with it. They don't want to sell it. There's infighting and they just kind of hang on to it and let it go downhill. They could be people that have gotten old and moved out of state for so long, they ran the property and they think it'll run just fine remotely and it doesn't. So there's a lot of different factors. Look, a lot of people have commercial property as a write-off. They can honestly care less how much of it is leased up or not, right? People with an excessive Uh amount of money, Literally, I've bought strip malls from them. If there's a vacancy, they will put zero effort into leasing it out. They just don't want to be bothered. Whatever tenants are there on day one, cool, you leave, you can leave. I'm not replacing you. I don't care about selling the strip mall at a loss. I just want the tax write off. Yeah, or it's somebody who was active and then they got a little older and they're like, this cash flow is enough for my lifestyle. They never bothered to raise the rents. 10 years later, they're like, all right, I'm going to sell it before I die or after, and it's an inheritance, it may be full, but it's got 10-year-old rent rates in it. And you pick it up and you can instantly raise the rents. And now you've changed both the cash flow and it's valued now on that rent it brings in. So it's worth a million dollars more. Man, I got to tell you a story. So for many years, I was a one-person shop and I became friends with all my tenants, right? Something that people are shocked to hear is pre-COVID, I would do a happy hour at my house 
once a quarter for all my commercial tenants. I love hanging out with these people. It's great networking. They're business owners, right? So I became friends with them and my wife would never believe this, but I'm a really nice guy and I had a hard time raising rents. I just didn't have it in me to raise rents. And this went on for many, many years. I hire an operations manager and one of the first things she does is say, oh my God, why are they only paying this much? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, I don't have the heart to tell them they got to pay more. So she went in and started raising all their rents, right? But at the time, these were buildings that I've had for a while. I didn't really care a whole lot. Like, I would have been happy to sell them off and get them off my portfolio. But that's what happens. We become complacent, right? I became friends. I didn't want to have that hard conversation, which is a great reason why I hired that out. So, yeah, that's a prime example of what you're talking about. If somebody were going to buy their first non-multifamily building, what they should be most concerned about? What should they do to de-risk it? Even if they make mistakes, they can still figure it out. What's a mistake not to make? So the first thing you look at is what has to happen for me to lose money, right? So you look at the current income and you look at the current expenses and you think, okay, how much more vacancy can I absorb? If these tenants stop paying rent and or leave, Am I still okay? If you're one tenant away, multi-unit property from losing money or breaking even, you can't buy that. But if you can absorb like 30% vacancy and still be okay, great. That's a starting point. Now, what makes you think that you're going to be able to make money and make this property better? That's the next step. Is the population growing in that area? Are there more jobs coming in? Are traffic counts increasing on the adjacent roads? Is the household income going up? Is there such little vacancy all around you that your property is an anomaly? You look at all those other factors, right? And during due diligence, I mean, you've seen these due diligence lists, Mike. I mean, you go as far as calling the economic development office. You call the chief of police and get their opinion on the building. You go talk to different tenants, neighboring businesses, and you do all of your legwork And until you have evidence that you can improve this property, you still don't buy it. Just because you can absorb additional losses, that doesn't mean you move forward. That just means, okay, you can go on to step two. And then step two is, can you provide evidence that you can make this property better? Okay. And it's interesting when you talk to people, they'll tell you that you didn't even ask for. I had a conversation last week with a zoning commissioner. And then I was calling saying, do you think we could rezone this property? And he was like, yeah, the city wanted it to be this. It hasn't sold. We're just waiting now for it to be rezoned. He's like, basically, these are the two things we don't want to do. Everything else is on the table. And I asked him, what would the city really like there? And he said, well, you should talk to the head of the planning commission, who's the mayor. It's a smaller town. Give me the mayor's number. Called the mayor. The mayor was totally excited to talk about what he thought, what the city would like to have there. And they just laid out this pathway to like, if you want to try and make this go, here's how we'll help you. And so it may not be a done deal, but they tried to paint the road. And the funny thing is the mayor at the end is he's like, that building's not doing well right now. And that's bad for taxes. (laughs) It's like, I like taxes. I want to help somebody get in there who's going to collect more taxes the building worth more so it could be taxed more, get a business that's doing sales taxes. 
And I didn't expect to get that kind of support out of city leaders. Maybe they're not all that way, but an interesting who jumps forward to help you. Good for you for asking those questions because many people don't, right? And what we've found over the years is every time we buy a property, we will make the phone calls to the economic development, planning, zoning. If it's a city council member, we can get on the phone, a mayor, if it's a small town. And based on their attitude, will often determine if we walk away from a deal or not. We had one of the most lucrative deals ever in a small town in Illinois, we'll just say. And I mean, this was like 40% cash on cash returns on a six and a half million dollar strip mall. When we spoke with the city council member that was on the phone in economic development, I asked them, how would you improve this property? And their answer was, well, I'd probably tear half of it down so it doesn't appear vacant. And I'm like, your answer is to knock down half of a strip mall. That's as best as you can do. So that sealed the deal for us. We knew that it would be impossible getting anything done with this city. Look, I've had buildings that I was able to pick up very cheap from municipalities that wanted us to put a bar, a brewery, a restaurant in them. And when we went to city council meetings and they were difficult to deal with, we walked away from them because those are the towns that are stagnant. If you ever look at the booming suburb that's around you, go to one of those city council meetings and you'll see that they're cohesive. They're all laughing and joking together and they're supportive of their community. Whenever you see a town that hasn't changed in 20 years, go to one of their city council meetings and you'll see there's a lot of passive aggressiveness, a lot of infighting, and they're politicking more than supporting the community. Right. So yeah, that's a huge, huge part of our due diligence is find out what kind of city council they have. And that's where maybe you see when you look at a growing suburbs that one suburb is booming and the next one over that seems like for no good reason is lagging behind because the I, politics aren't growing. I've seen it for over 10 years. Some of these city leaders are so welcoming of businesses, even if they don't have money to give. Just the fact that they're supportive and welcoming is half the battle, right? Now, look, there's not a lot of municipalities that can start giving out grants and tax abatements and free funding. But as long as they're supportive of business, it's a thriving community. But the ones that two sides divided city council, mayors at odds with people in the city council, those are the towns that are stagnant. And you absolutely want to avoid going in there because you'll often get used as a pawn between the two sides. And we've had that happen before. Oh, wow. So before we finish up, talking to docs again, time is always an issue because doctors are busy. Any advice for how to start out or I guess that could be finding partners, finding somebody who you put your money with or doing your own deal. You said, okay, I've got five hours a week I can put into this. What would you do with that five hours? Okay. So nobody has the excuse not to listen to an audiobook, right? Let's just start there. What you mentioned earlier about all the fees that money managers and 401ks charge and pension plans charge becomes very evident in a book called Unshakable by Tony Robbins. It's a pretty easy book to read or listen to. And there's some key metrics in there on fees and the total impact to your portfolio, right? So let's establish the baseline there. 
having somebody else manage your money is potentially very costly. Now, you don't want to go down and take a college course and investing money and growing wealth. But the flip side of that is by giving it to somebody else, you're at their mercy, right? Even with the markets going up, you've seen it. I've seen it with my wife's pension where her account doesn't go up as much, but then the money managers are putting everyone at ease and they're saying, hey, don't worry. At least when the market goes down, we don't lose as much. Well, then when the market goes down, they lose even more. It's a waiting game and it's easy to kick that can and say, okay, on the next cycle, we'll make it up. So if you don't take your financial future, your wealth building into your own hands, you're at the mercy of others, not just the market, but other individuals, right? So how do you take that into your hands if you don't have time? You could spend hours and hours reading, watching YouTube videos, networking with people, or you latch onto somebody like you that is still in their shoes, right? But you've taken the time and you've shortened the learning curve of others by learning everything yourself. So I would spend the time to have these conversations with people like you, right? Learn as much as you can. Be respectful of people's time. So when somebody approaches Mike McManus, don't just say, hey, Mike, I want to pick your brain. Let's go to lunch or whatever. Like, Be respectful. Try to add value. Mike, here's where I'm coming from. Is there anything I could do to help you? And here's, I'd like to learn about this, this, and this, right? But by all means, man, like you've already learned a lot of the basics and you've seen the ups and downs of different investments and you know how to grow money. You've seen wealth grow. So you can shorten that learning curve for a lot of other docs. Oh, well, thanks. I think sometimes getting into it seems like this giant thing, but you get one little investment and you start making some money and you learn something and then you can do something a little bit more. And next thing you know, a little bit down the road, all of a sudden you're making money outside of being a doc. And then you're not so dependent and you don't feel when that time where you're stressed at work, you don't feel so trapped by it. And you're like, okay, I got this here now and I've slowly built it. But then that starts to build a little faster rate. And it's interesting. You start talking to other docs, there's a good number who do have the ones who seem like they're ready to like, yeah, I can quit any time are the ones who have real estate. And everybody else is still trying to put money in their bucket to get going. I was at a conference and I forget who it was, but they were talking about the difference between filling your bucket for retirement and building a stream. And if you get stuck on the bucket thing, you never know. You're always looking at your bucket going, is my bucket big enough? Is my bucket big enough? But when you start building streams and you see that stream flowing and it keeps flowing and it keeps flowing, you're like, okay, there's enough in the stream now I can live on or I can live without having to work so hard. And the stream just keeps getting bigger. I don't have to worry so much because that stream's going to keep flowing. So yeah, Mike, to that example, high net worth W2 people, physicians especially, do they really understand that when they stop working, the stream stops, the money's done, right? And then you have this arbitrary number. Okay, if I have three, four million dollars saved up, I can live on this much money. Come on, really? Like that's what you want to do? What if something happens, right? What if you want to put a nephew or niece through college? I don't understand how somebody so well-educated can be okay with the fact that when they stop working, the money stops coming in, right? 
look, my wife and I, if I was still a W2 person, my wife's still a physician, we would end up working till our 60s because that's the pensions that were set up with our employers, right? Our lifestyle's gone up, savings maybe has gone up a little bit, but that was our plan. That was our path. And honestly, it was just finding real estate where I've been begging her to quit her job for years, but she truly loves what she does. So she works four days a week, pretty stress-free now. But yeah, man, like you got to be able to make money while you're sleeping, right? And even in retirement, how nice would it be to not have to see a dwindling bank balance, right? Imagine seeing something that continuously grows. Yeah. She works four days a week now. If she got stressed, she doesn't feel like she has to stay till six o'clock, seven o'clock at night. She doesn't need to do that extra work. Look, she's one of these physicians that their group sold out to private equity. So now she's just an employee, happy as ever, doesn't have to manage a whole staff and a practice. Speaking of real estate, we built her building and we sold that. So like, she has no responsibilities, literally goes to work three and a half days a week, really and enjoys it, right? Took a lot of the stress out of it and doesn't have to worry about income because we've built enough reserves and income and wealth that neither one of us need to work, but we both love what we do. That's an awesome thing. You're not job dependent anymore. Right. So, all right. Well, thank you, Ash. I so much appreciate you being on the show. Any last pearls of wisdom before we wrap it up today? Yeah. And again, look, I've had these close friends of mine that have been physicians for over 20 years and I see them, their mindset, they're at the point where a lot of them got bought out by the hospital system. They've become employees. They can no longer take as much vacation as they want. They've become a slave to their system. And look, it's no secret every year, most physicians probably make less and less money because reimbursements are going down. They're working harder and they're fighting harder for every dollar that they make, there's not a happy ending and continuing to do that, right? And thinking, what if? What if somebody buys my practice? Those what ifs are silly, man. Take control of your financial future. It's not that difficult, right? Talk to people that have done it. Talk to other physicians. Real estate for me is the most efficient way I've ever found to grow wealth, right? Forget those Bitcoin, crypto, I've invested in a lot of startups. Real estate is still the most efficient way I've ever seen on growing wealth. So take advantage of that. All right. Thank you, Ash. Appreciate it. And that's it for today. This has been an episode of Surgeon Syndicate. If you got value from this episode, you know other surgeons are hungry to become job optional, and you can help them by sharing this content today. I'd also love to serve you better, so I wanted to offer you two things. Number one, I'll be able to give you the content in an even better way if you take a moment and leave an honest written review of the show explaining what you like and what you don't. And number two, if you are a surgeon and serious about this, you don't want to do this on your own because you don't want to make mistakes with your money. I'd be happy to help you. Schedule a call and we can make a plan. Looking forward to having you with me on the next episode.